Episode 11, El Alamein. Sand whips past, rasping on the side of the tank, caking in the gears, lashing through the ports. The world is a crimson haze. The roar of cannons becomes muffled thunder, carried away on the wind. He can't see anything. The sandstorm has reduced the world to a tiny rectangle of frantic, chaotic movement. At 20 meters, a tank is a shadow, a ghost blown on the sand. At 30 meters, two tanks might pass one another like ships in the night. His nails dig into his palm. He peers out into the haze. He can't see anything. Are they ahead of their unit? Behind it? All he can tell for certain is that they're heading over a dune, grinding slowly up the shifting sand. Then there, what was that? A dark shape. It starts to take form, to become solid, to become, oh God. In front of them, over them, the massive shape of a panzer. It's cresting the hill, bearing down on them. He doesn't have time to think, just to shout. Fire. Welcome to The Finest Half Hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. The war in the desert has seesawed across North Africa for almost two years. Both the British and the Germans have had major breakthroughs and mighty triumphs. But neither has been able to knock the other out. Each time one appeared on the very threshold of victory, the true foe of the North African campaign reared its head and knocked them back. That foe was supply. Moving the thousands of tonnes of fuel and food and munitions required to wage a modern war across baked sands and unpaved desert was a daunting task. And the tenuous thread of trucks and horses that wound its way along the desert coast to connect armies at the front with the bases that sustained them could snap at any moment. Cut by an attack from the air, an end run or a lightning raid. Rommel once called tanks the battleships of the desert and declared that desert war wasn't about taking ground. It was about seizing vast tracts of empty, valueless sand. It was about keeping the enemy from being able to have more tanks in the field than you. To some extent, numbers could be mitigated by good generalship and veteran troops. But there would come a point where these tactical advantages wouldn't be enough where the strategic situation would become hopeless if one side could outpace the other and get enough tanks to the front fast enough, with enough supplies to use them. But last episode, while we were focused on Rommel and the war in the desert, a major turning point occurred 2,000 miles away from the heat and the sand. For during that time, Hitler decided to invade the snowy reaches of the USSR. The invasion of Russia became Germany's focus, Resources got diverted. The already scarce supply of tanks, planes and petrol coming from the Third Reich became even harder for Rommel to procure. But there's another major turning point in the North African campaign right around the corner, this time coming from the other side of the world. So join us as the fortunes of war swing again, this week on The Finest Half Hour. May to June 1942 the Ghazala Line. He bounced along in the back of the truck, shoveling the dry, grey, pasty meat out of his ration tin. On the top were the proud, bold letters AM, for Administrazione Militare, but the Germans always teased them that it stood for Arsch Mussolini, Mussolini's arse. He had to admit they were kind of right, 
Even he and his buddies called it a Zeno-Morto, dead donkey. What he wouldn't give for some pasta or even the water to boil it in. Gah! The truck hit a rock. He'd spilled meat paste all over himself. Now he'd stink of it for days. Who knew how long it would be until he could get a real shower? He... All of a sudden, the world turned sideways. People were screaming. For a second, he was floating. Then the world went black. Mina, Mina! It was a sound. Words. Someone was shouting. His eyes started to open. Desert sun, blinding. He closed his eyes again. Someone was shaking him. More shouting. Mina! Mother of mercy. They'd wandered into a minefield. Just as the siege of Tobruk was at last raised, and the British were relieving the force that had, for the better part of a year, so gallantly defended the city, news started to filter in about a momentous event that had happened on the other side of the globe. On a sleepy sunlit island in the middle of the Pacific, the Japanese had launched a surprise attack against the United States of America. They had bombed Pearl Harbor. And on that day, Churchill said he went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful, because he knew now America had to enter the war. For two years, he had cajoled and coaxed, flattered and courted the American people, and for two years, he had begged FDR to bring the United States directly into the war. Now, at last, they would hold back no longer. Four days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Hitler engaged in what some have called one of the greatest strategic blunders in history. He declared war on the United States. Churchill immediately seized on this opportunity and flew to Washington, where he and Roosevelt agreed on a policy of Germany first. A policy that said defeating Hitler took priority over toppling the Empire of Japan. There they also penned a document called the Declaration by United Nations, which stated... Complete victory is essential to defend life, liberty, independence and religious freedom, and to preserve human rights and justice in their own lands as well as in other lands, and that they are now engaged in a common struggle against savage and brutal forces seeking to subjugate the world. This document and the nations that signed it would form the basis of today's UN. But even as such bold statements were being made, Rommel was making plans in North Africa. An uneasy stalemate had settled in about 30 miles west of Tobruk. From Gazala on the coast of the ancient Ottoman fort of Bur Hakim in the south. After the mad rush of Operation Crusader and Rommel's lightning counterstroke, both sides had taken several months to refit and repair. But Rommel knew all too well just what the entry of America into the war meant. It meant that American goods, American tanks and eventually American troops would start flowing into North Africa at a rate he could not hope to compete with, no matter how good his tactics might be. It meant he'd have to strike the knockout blow soon or have no chance of winning at all. But he wasn't alone in knowing this. The British were equally aware of the situation and, though Churchill pushed for an attack to take pressure off the sorely pressed garrison of Malta, as well as to demonstrate to his new allies in the USSR that Russian citizens weren't alone in bearing the burden of the war, Orkenlik bided his time, trusting to the massive minefields he had laid to allow him to sit on the defensive until he had an overwhelming force. Churchill would get his attack, but not until sometime in June. Rommel struck at the end of May. 
Rommel's plan was simple, use the enemy's expectations against them. The British assumed that Rommel would attack along the coast road, the only road large enough and well enough paved to support sustained operations in North Africa. So they placed the bulk of their defences there in preparation for Rommel's inevitable attack. But Rommel was one step ahead of them. Realising that this would be the British assumption, he decided to play on their expectations. He sent a small diversionary force north to assault the coastal defences there, while he sent the majority of his army south to overwhelm the weaker British positions and push east to circle behind the defenders on the coast. And herein lies the genius of Rommel's plan. Knowing that the British expected to be attacked along the coast, he gambled that they would assume that any attack there was his main attack and so be hesitant to move troops away from the coastal defences, even as reports of attacks started to come in elsewhere down the line. And those reports started to come in soon. As Rommel's panzers drove east from the southern end of the line, they immediately began running into British pickets. They swept aside armoured and motorised units one after another, leaving the shattered husks of British vehicles in their wake. But as the first phase of the battle drew to a close, reverses started to set in. The Italian tank division had been turned aside in their attack, and even Rommel's German troops had largely been blunted when they reached the fortified positions in the south. To make matters worse, his army was almost out of water and fuel, and their supply column was nowhere to be seen. Rommel concentrated his forces and then set off personally to lead a search party into the hostile desert. At last, late into the night, his men saw the shining beacons of supply truck headlights. Rommel had found them. They had wandered too far south, but were intact. Their cargo was enough for Rommel's troops to survive. So Rommel pushed north towards the coastal road, but Rommel's plan was as brash as it was bold. He hadn't anticipated just how far Auchinlick's minefields extended. In swinging north to get behind the British forces on the coast, instead of cutting off the enemy, he had actually cut off himself. Fortified positions surrounded him, and a huge minefield stood at his back. He could not retreat. He was isolated and completely cut off from his supplies. The situation was desperate. His men were down to half a cup of water a day. If the British had attacked at that moment, the whole of the Africa Corps might have collapsed. But they didn't. They made the fatal error. They gave the initiative back to Rommel, who improvised and changed his whole strategy. The goal was still to get behind the troops on the coast road, but first he needed to re-establish their line of supply. Rommel set up a defensive position as his engineers carved a narrow path through the sea of British mines. Supply began to flow through, but there was a problem. One of the British defensive positions they had bypassed was perfectly located to rain down artillery fire on the newly open line of supply. So Rommel left his 88s dug in defending his base in what had now become known as the Cauldron, both because it was in a depression and because it sat within a ring of mines and took his tanks to assail the British guns. The defenders held out valiantly, but short on ammo and now cut off from the rest of the British line, they waited for a counterattack that never came. On the 1st of June they surrendered. Rommel's supply lines were secure. 
But just as they were laying down their arms, the British counterattack finally came. It was all for naught though, as they charged right into the teeth of Rommel's 88s and were forced back. The next day they pressed the attack again, but now Rommel's defensive position, fully supplied using the enemy's own minefields to protect their line of supply, was more than ready. Again, British forces were repulsed. On the 5th, the British prepared for a massive assault. Orkenlick pressed Neil Ritchie, the local commander, to attack, but the attack was horribly mishandled. The artillery cover went wide. Tank attacks weren't coordinated. Reinforcements were thrown in pell-mell. The operation was so badly botched that it left Rommel an opening and he seized it. He went on the attack. By the end of the day, hundreds of British tanks were destroyed and with the exception of a position held by the Free French, almost all of the Allied southern strongpoints were overrun. The retreat order was given. In the chaos, an act of heroism saved many. On Rigel Ridge, a group of South African artillerymen volunteered to stay behind and cover the retreat. On the 13th, in the midst of a sandstorm, the Germans attacked. Guns blazed through the dust and the wind. The South Africans fought so close they didn't even bother to use their sights. They just pointed their massive pieces at the enemy tanks and fired shell after shell until every gun was silenced. They lost so many that day their regiment wouldn't be reformed until after the war. But they bought many other regiments the time they needed to escape. Unfortunately, as the retreat continued, Ritchie and Orkenlick began to argue about where the next defensive line should be. Orkenlick wanted it to be west of Tobruk to prevent another siege. Ritchie wanted to pull back into Egypt. But it didn't matter, because while they squabbled, Rommel smashed through the British line and captured Tobruk. After all this time, after all the blood spilt in its defence, Rommel had finally taken Tobruk. July 1942, El Alamein. Men rush, hunch-shouldered, through trenches. Salvos of guns arc overhead. It's like an ant colony, the lines drawn in the sand. A frenzy of activity, each person knowing their purpose, but their actions, as a whole, blurring into one grand, incomprehensible design. Sandbags decorate machine gun nests. Spools of barbed wire festoon the desert, reflecting back the dizzying sun. Red paints the russet earth. Great iron beasts roar and cough, lurching over mine-laden ground. Sizzling shell cartridges spit back from barking guns. Great birds of iron and timber shriek through heat-hazed air. But there is a commonality to all these men, to all these actions. For in each is a desperation, a desperation born of struggle, of peril, of duty, a desperation to live. After the fall of Tobruk, the British desperately tried to slow the stampeding panzers. They needed to buy time for the core of their army to regroup and establish a new defensive line. A delaying action was ordered. They sent out the 10th Corps, refitted with the latest American tanks. It was strong enough to stop the Axis forces in their tracks. But conflicting orders and communication failures abounded. 
The commanders on the scene didn't know if they were supposed to attack or withdraw. At one point, it got so bad that part of the delaying forces launched a counterattack without knowing that the troops, who were supposed to be supporting their flank, had already retreated and were rapidly heading in the opposite direction. The brand new tanks were squandered. Desperately needed supplies and vehicles were captured. Germans joked with one another that the biggest challenge ahead of them would be not shooting each other because by this point, over 80% of their transport vehicles were captured British gear. The British Embassy started burning their papers. German officers began planning their R&R in Cairo. There was almost nothing between them and the great cities of Egypt. All they had to do was take a tiny railway junction called El Alamein. But the British knew this would be a last stand. They had to hold here. If they failed, they might lose Egypt. Fascists would control North Africa and, perhaps soon, the Middle East. At home, people were skittish. They had just lost Singapore and Manila in the east and now faced the fall of Tobruk in the west. Some were calling for a change in government. Others were calling for Britain to pull out of the war. This was it. One last chance to pull back from the brink and set things right. The British enjoyed a few advantages at El Alamein, though. The ground was good. From the nearby ridgelines, spotters could see an attack coming for miles. It was close to Allied air bases, meaning not only would air cover be substantial, but British planes would be able to harass continually Rommel's line of supply. Perhaps most importantly, though, the terrain to the south was impassable for tanks. Rommel couldn't employ his favourite technique of going around the British line. He'd have to go straight through them if he wanted to get to Cairo. So Rommel took a gamble. He wagered that if he could make one more push before the retreating army could reorganise, he might be able to pierce through, perhaps even cut off Britain's last major force in Africa. But supply problems caused delays, buying just enough time for the British to get their troops into place. On the 1st of July, Rommel attacked. But his exhausted forces, weakened by attrition and weeks of relentless attack, low on supplies and fighting under heavy bombardment were turned back everywhere. By the 5th, he began to dig in. He needed a few weeks to get back to full strength. His divisions were desperately undermanned. His tanks were falling apart and, as he now realised, his supply situation was desperate. His staff had been working from a plan where the army would stop for six weeks at Tobruk. He was now 350 miles further away and needing to rebuild his forces during active combat. The situation was made worse by relentless RAF bombing and exacerbating the supply problem even further was the fact that shipments from Italy were in decline. The Italian economy was already showing signs of weakness. The Italian navy was struggling to get enough fuel to even protect convoys for the short hop from Sicily to North Africa, and most of Germany's resources were tied up on the Eastern Front. The British, seeing Rommel was on the back foot, decided it was their turn to attack. Hurling down massive waves of artillery fire from the heights, Australian troops drove off the Italians on Rommel's northern flank overrunning their headquarters and blinding Rommel by capturing a key part of his intelligence apparatus. 
the signals company in charge of intercepting British radio traffic. Rommel counterattacked with his panzers. The cost was high, but he stabilised his lines. So Orkenlich developed a new plan, named Operation Bacon. The idea was as straightforward as a plan can get. Just attack the Italians. Orkenlich believed they would collapse easily due to low morale and knew that without them, Rommel simply wouldn't have enough troops to maintain an extended front. So on the morning of the 15th, New Zealanders surged towards the Italian positions on a nearby ridge. They seized the ridgeline, but minefields disrupted their attack, forcing them to leave pockets of enemy troops in the rear. These holdouts prevented their artillery and anti-tank guns making it up to support them, and a breakdown in communication meant that the armour that was supposed to protect them never got the order to move. So again, Rommel brought in his panzer divisions to counterattack. The British forces were swept back and ended up practically where they began. But they'd forced Rommel to change tactics. He placed minefields in front of every Italian division and mixed German units in with them in order to keep them from collapsing under enemy assault. But to do so, he was forced to siphon those units off from his already understrength German divisions, weakening them even further. Then, on the 21st, the same thing happened again. Again, New Zealanders were ordered to take the same ridge. Again, they succeeded. Again, communication issues and confused orders kept their tank support from moving forward. And again, a counterattack by panzers pushed them back. This time, though, the British losses were compounded by the fact that the commander of the 23rd Armoured Brigade was determined to follow his orders to a T. And his orders were to attack through a minefield. Of course, Orkenlich didn't know that when the orders were sent out. But when this fact became abundantly obvious to the tank crews on the ground, the brigadier in charge ordered the attack to continue anyway. Surrounded by enemy guns, trapped in mines, they lost dozens of tanks and suffered a nearly 50% casualty rate. Another attack was tried. Again, it failed because of poor coordination between infantry and tank formations. But despite this, despite winning nearly every engagement, the situation was growing worse for Rommel. His supplies were running thin. His losses were so much harder for him to replace than losses were for the British that, with every passing day, his victories only left him more outnumbered. So on the 26th of July, Orkenlich ordered Operation Manhood. Another attack on the same part of the Axis line. This time, it was to be a night attack. By 2am, the first objectives fell. Once again, the British had seized the opposing ridgeline. But during the night, the anti-tank units had gotten lost, and so, once again, as dawn broke, Axis troops saw British forces sitting on top of the ridge without support. And once again, the attack had been ordered through a minefield. But this time, at least it was ordered through a gap in the mines that engineers had made. But no one could agree on where the gap actually was. So once again, British armour was delayed. And once again, Rommel ordered a counterattack with his panzers. Again, the unsupported infantry on the ridge was overrun. And once again, a number of Australians died, thousands of miles from home for nothing at all. 
At last, with his forces exhausted, Auchinleck decided it was time to dig in. They hadn't exactly won the fight, but, at last, they had blunted Rommel's advance. Alexandria, Cairo and the Suez Canal were safe, at least for now. But Auchinleck's job wasn't. Finally, Churchill decided it was time to let Auchinleck go. He tapped Sir William Gott for the position, a well-liked commander, but, as one of his troops, who would later go on to become a field marshal himself, famously said, he was too good a man to be a really great soldier. Even Gott himself wasn't sure he was the right man for the task. But, as he flew to Cairo to take over the command, an event happened that was, in the odd way that sometimes happens during momentous times, a tragedy for one man, but, perhaps a salvation for many, his plane was shot down. With Gott dead, Churchill needed a new commander right away, and Sir Alan Brooke, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, had an idea. There was a Lieutenant General down in Sussex who had been really whipping his troops into shape, one Bernard Montgomery. So join us next time as Montgomery gets into the war and takes the fight to Rommel in The Second Battle of El Alamein. <laughs>